Welcome to part 12 of the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's podcast presentation of Near Death, a rainy day investigation. Before we get started on this week's installment, where Freddie and Seymour make new plans, Nate and Jennifer investigate a mysterious gas leak at Diane's apartment, and Max checks in on Nate, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Audible, so you don't miss an exciting chapter. You'll also get my weekly short stories. Please like and share. It really helps to allow me to continue providing the audio versions of my work for free. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book in this series, Afterlife. So, make sure you follow all the authors on Amazon, using the links in this episode's description, to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 36 Seymour and Freddy sped away. Slow down, Seymour snarled at his skinny companion. Freddy eased off the gas and continued driving. What the hell? You had to get your stupid $20 hot dog? How did he know you were there? Freddy asked. I don't know. I guess the same way he knew we had been at that house. Freddy thought about it for a moment, then reached a conclusion. He knows who we are? Yeah, that's obvious. But how does he know where we are? Maybe the cops got us under surveillance. Nah, they would have grabbed us by now. I should have put two bullets in him. They said on the news he was on medical leave from the department. You think he's working on his own? Not unless that arm in a sling is an act. And the way he was running, he's not in any shape to write parking tickets, let alone chase us down. And if he knew anything, he'd tell his buddies on the force. So what's his game? Whatever it is, I'd bet he's got every cop in the city looking for this car. We gotta ditch it. Pull into this parking garage. Freddy drove the lot into the garage. He put on a baseball hat and a pair of glasses before rolling down his window to take a ticket and entering the structure. Head to the roof. Less of a chance anyone will spot it. So, uh, what are we going to do? Freddy asked. Get out of town? We still need to pay off Deuce. If he gets word that we skipped town, we won't be safe anywhere. We have to get that cop off our backs. Seymour considered their options. We have to finish what you started. Freddy looked at his partner. Maybe Deuce can help. After all, he won't see any money if we end up behind bars. They arrived at the top of the parking garage and pulled into a corner spot. They got out of the car, emptied a couple of large duffel bags from the trunk, and headed for the nearest stairway. Chapter 37 The scene outside of the Oakley Arms was chaotic. The entire building had been evacuated when the fire alarm was pulled. At least six fire engines and ambulances were present, and twice that many police cars had set a perimeter around the building. Diane sat in one of the ambulances. A mask supplying oxygen covered her nose and mouth. A paramedic monitored her vital signs. How are you feeling? The young ambulance attendant asked. A little nauseous, Diane replied. That should pass. How long were you in there? Just a few minutes. I almost fell asleep. Lucky you didn't. I guess, Diane replied. She hadn't told anyone about the ghostly figure in her kitchen, except for the brief phone call to Dr. Day she made from her neighbor's cell phone. She remembered having hers in the apartment, but couldn't recall when or where she had dropped it after dialing 911. Di, are you alright? A new voice asked, concerned. Diane turned to face the speaker and smiled weakly. Jerry, what are you doing here? Can't an old flame stop by for a visit? Usually they call first, she said. I did, you didn't answer. Diane remembered her lost phone. Oh, right. Lost my phone somewhere in the confusion. You could have left a message. I did that too, but then the news was saying there was a fire in your building, and I just wanted to make sure you were okay. Diane retained a degree of skepticism that Jerry could easily sense. And, he continued, 
I wanted to find out why you were telling some cop that I was harassing you. What? Some guy dresses really nice and a blonde woman? I'm not quite sure what her story was, to be honest. Detective Rainey and Dr. Day? They talked to you? They paid me a visit. I'm sorry. I didn't tell them anything like that. They must have... Must have what? I've just been having some problems at my apartment. They're looking into it for me. Jerry became suddenly concerned. What problems? Just strange things. And this afternoon I came home to a gas leak in my kitchen. Jerry shook his head. These old turn-of-the-century places are death traps. I hardly ever touch that stove. I usually use the microwave. Jerry felt a hand on his shoulder. He spun around to find Nate and Jennifer standing behind him, accompanied by a uniformed police officer. Hi again, Jerry, Nate said. I thought I told you to stay away from Diane. And I told you we're friends. I was concerned about her. It's okay, Diane said. Jerry was just worried. It wasn't him. Did you see her guest again? Jennifer asked. You mean the ghost? Diane asked, not caring if anyone else knew at this point. Yes, and I think he saved me. You had a gas leak in your apartment, Nate said. Hypoxia can cause hallucinations. It wasn't a hallucination. I left work early. I'd been putting in 16-hour days. Stopped at the grocery store, and I got a phone call as I was coming in the door. I smelled something, but it didn't register as gas right away. I was upset because the call was from work. They wanted me to come back in. I remember just wanting to close my eyes for a minute. Then there was a crash. He broke a cup in the kitchen. The noise woke me up. If he hadn't, I'd be dead now. I believe you, Jennifer said, stepping forward. You're not the first person to be helped by a spirit. Why are you talking about ghosts? I want to know who the cops think started the leak, Jerry said. Are you volunteering to go to the top of the list? Nate asked. Look, I told you I came here to see if she was okay, not to try to kill her. Stop it, Diane said. She turned to the paramedic. Am I okay to go? The young man frowned. Your vitals are fine, but if you feel any lightheadedness or if the nausea gets worse, get yourself to the ER, he advised. Diane took off the mask and stepped out of the ambulance. I think I'm going to find a hotel for the night. Miss Collins, Nate said. Can we have the keys to your apartment? I'd like to have a look around if that's okay with you. Diane considered, then realized she had left everything in her apartment. I left my keys, my wallet, my phone, everything inside. I guess I have to go back in there after all. We can go for you, Jennifer offered. I can grab some clothes for you too, if you like. Actually, I have an earthquake bag in my front closet. If you can grab that for me, I'll be fine. There's a motor lodge up the street. White house, white fence, something with white in it. You can't miss it. We'll find it, Nate promised. Come on, Jerry said. We can put your room on my credit card. Thanks, Diane said. Thank you all. We'll talk more later, Jennifer replied. When you're ready, I want to hear everything about what you saw. Diane added a promise to do so, then walked off slowly, allowing Jerry to support her by one arm. Nate got the attention of a nearby uniformed officer. Detective Rainey, the officer said, surprised. Nate didn't know the young man, but obviously getting shot had come with a degree of notoriety. Would you mind making sure Miss Collins gets to where she's going safely? He nodded at Diane, slowly walking away with her arm draped over Jerry's shoulder. No problem, sir. The officer fell in step behind the couple, and Nate fell relieved. You still think he's the source of her problems? Jennifer asked. More than ever, Nate responded. He turned to Jennifer. She has a gas leak not more than a couple hours after we talked to him. Then he's here to comfort her afterward? Some crazy Munchausen white knight thing going on here. I don't trust him one bit. Or he's a friend concerned for her well-being, just like he said. Nate shook his head. 
I think I've seen a bit more of the dark side of humanity than you have. Trust me, people are seldom what they seem. That's a very cynical point of view. No wonder you're a skeptic. Ned ignored her comment and searched for a familiar face among the gathered first responders. He walked up to a man in a white shirt with black epaulets and a badge pinned to his breast pocket. Gary, how's it going? Gary Fitzhugh, the fire inspector, turned toward Nate and smiled. Nate Rainey, how are you? More importantly, how is that old uncle of yours? He's doing well. Just saw him the other day. I heard what happened to you. Yeah, Nate answered, glancing down at his slung arm. Forgot to duck. Fitzhugh laughed. <laughs> what can I help you with? Is the building cleared yet? He nodded at Jennifer. We know the woman from 10H. I was hoping to take a look around, after you've done your thing, that is. Oh, we're done. What did you find? Looks like someone was cleaning the stove. The knobs were off, and the burners got turned on without igniting. We see that quite often. Diane didn't say anything about cleaning, Jennifer said. Gary shrugged. Maybe she had a careless cleaning lady. Maybe the super stopped by. Could it have been intentional? Nate asked. Certainly, the fire inspector answered. But there was no sign of forced entry. Miss Collins said that her door was locked when she got home. She might have done it accidentally before she went to work, and just forgot about it. She seemed to be under a lot of stress. You check for prints? Yeah, but this stove was wiped clean. That's why we think someone was cleaning and didn't realize they had turned on the gas. Or they were hiding their trail, Nate suggested. Well, CSI took a look, and unless we find any evidence to the contrary... Thanks, Gary. So we can go up? Nate asked. Sure, but you'll have to take the stairs. The elevators got locked down when the fire alarm went off, and we haven't reset them yet. Nate winced at the notion of climbing ten flights of stairs with his tweaked ankle. You could try the service elevator, a voice suggested. Nate and Jennifer turned around. Rose was standing behind them, smiling warmly, her hands knotted together in front of her. Hi, Jennifer said. Rose, isn't it? You're Diane's neighbor. Yes. I was also on the tenant's board when we put the freight elevators in. It wasn't put on the same fire controls since it wasn't publicly accessible. You should be able to get to it through that doorway in the corner of the lobby. Mr. Dingle, the current superintendent, leaves it unlocked during the day. I'll show you. Thank you, Rose, Nate said. He turned to Jennifer. Let's go take a look. Chapter 38 The fire inspector sent a rookie under his command to accompany Nate and Jennifer and Rose through the barricade. Then the old woman led them to the door discreetly tucked away in one corner of the lobby marked employees only. As she predicted, the door was unlocked. A short hallway led them through a utility corridor and then to a loading dock with a roll-up door on one end and a service elevator on the other. Thank you, Rose, Jennifer said to their guide. You're welcome, dearie, Rose answered. If you don't mind, I'm going to wait until the regular elevator is in order. I like it when my elevator plays music. She turned around and shuffled away. Nate and Jennifer approached the old service elevator. It had a manual door that opened vertically rather than horizontally. There were buttons for each floor inside the car. Nate reached for the handle of the door to pull it open. Hey, watch it there. You're not in any condition to be straining yourself like that, Jennifer warned. She stepped between Nate and the handle, grabbed a hold of it, and easily flung it open. If I knew you were so strong, I would have just had you carry me up the stairs. Jennifer looked around inside the dingy interior of the elevator. It may still come to that. They entered the car, and Jennifer pulled the door shut. Nate pressed the button for the tenth floor. After a second, the elevator started making noise, then jerked into motion, carrying them slowly upward. Jennifer noticed the elevator inspection certificate. Ah, Inspector Number 43. I'm familiar with his work. But it seems like he hasn't been here in a while. You could have pointed that out before we pressed the button. The elevator creaked skyward, 
The numbers of the floors passed by as they ascended, visible through the slats of the elevator door. You still think Henderson was behind all this? He had plenty of time to get here after we talked to him, sabotaged the stove. You don't believe the fire inspector that it was an accident? Diane said she barely has been home long enough to sleep. I very much doubt she decided to give her kitchen a good spring cleaning. Maybe it was the building super. Too many maybes, Nate said. When you have to work that hard to explain something away, chances are you may want to give it a second look. Jerry seemed genuinely concerned about Diane. Yeah, he shows up to comfort her after she nearly dies. How convenient. Maybe the ghost turned on the gas, Nate suggested sarcastically. I don't think so, Jennifer replied. When they interact with the physical, it's usually something like what Diane mentioned. Knocking over a cup, blowing out a candle. Sounds like ghosts and the wind have a lot in common. Jennifer smiled, realizing Nate was not making a serious suggestion. Well, either the wind or Diane's ghost saved her life. I'm guessing the gas was so strong in her apartment because the windows were closed. So, I'm betting on the ghost. Nate shook his head. He watched the numbers go by and saw the elevator car pass 9 and then 10. Hey, didn't we press 10? He jammed his thumb against the button over the number 12, but the elevator kept on moving. Press the stop button, Jennifer suggested. Nate jabbed at the red button, but the elevator continued its upward trajectory. There was a loud bang. The car stopped suddenly, throwing Nate and Jennifer off balance. The motor for the elevator kept on grinding away, humming and screeching, but the car wasn't moving. Looks like we're stuck between floors, Nate said. Why is it still trying to move? Jennifer asked. I don't know, but I don't like the sound of that. The elevator jerked up about a foot, made another loud bang, then something snapped off the bottom of the car. They couldn't see it, but they could hear something large hitting the sides of the elevator shaft as it fell to the basement. Nate pulled out his wallet and fished out a metal rectangle with various shapes cut into it. He used one corner as a screwdriver and removed the screws from the cover of the elevator control panel. Do you have any idea what you're doing? Nope, but I'm hoping we can shut it down before that cable snaps. Okay, I'm all for that. Can I help? Nate inspected the collection of wires leading from the buttons. What's your favorite color? Blue, Jennifer answered. Nate reached for the blue wire with a recessed wire snipper on his wallet tool. No, red, Jennifer shouted. Nate looked at her and she shrugged. I'm discovering I'm not very confident in life-threatening situations. Of course, this is the first one I've been in, so I don't have a lot to go on. Don't worry, we'll get out of this, he said calmly. Nate reached for the green wire and sliced through it. The elevator motor died with a whine. They both breathed a sigh of relief. Let's see if we can get out of here, Nate suggested. He and Jennifer both grabbed the door handle and slid it open. They were between floors, but he could get enough of a grip on the second door to open it wide enough to make an opening they could fit through. You go first, then you can help me out, Nate suggested. Jennifer nodded. She climbed up to the opening and pulled herself through. Then she reached back to give Nate a hand. The elevator slipped and jerked down a few inches. Nate was knocked off his feet. He got back up, reached up with his good arm to grab Jennifer's outstretched hand. She pulled on him, and he managed to get most of his body through the opening and onto the twelfth floor. The elevator groaned again. Nate's feet were still inside the car. Jennifer grabbed the collar of his jacket and pulled back while he brought his knees up to his chest. The elevator cable snapped, and the car dropped down the shaft, screeching and sparking until it crashed into the basement floor. Nate found himself with his head in Jennifer's lap. He looked up at her. She smiled. Thanks, Nate said. Anytime, she replied. And by any time, I mean, I hope we never have to do anything like that again. Chapter 39 Nate and Jennifer exited the stairwell on the 10th floor. The journey obviously took a toll on Nate's ankle. 
and he walked with a pronounced limp at this point. Let me help you, Jennifer said. She took his good arm and wrapped it around her shoulder so he could use her for support. Thanks, Nate acknowledged reluctantly. It wasn't that he felt emasculated by accepting help from Jennifer, but rather that he needed help at all. This physical recovery wasn't exactly speeding along, and now with his ankle hurt, there would be more delay. You sure you still want to take a look at Diane's apartment? She asked. We should get you looked at. We need to wait for them to get the elevators operational, so we might as well use the time to investigate. They arrived at Diane's door. It was unlocked. Jennifer pushed it open, and they walked into the apartment. Nate took his arm from around Jennifer's shoulders and supported himself on the back of a chair. Jennifer found Diane's phone, gathered up the groceries, and carried them to the kitchen. Her nose caught a scent. You smell that? She asked. Nate sniffed. Smells like flowers. Roses, Jennifer replied. Do you see any flowers around here? She crossed to the bathroom and returned with an empty bottle. Looks like Diane replaced that bottle of rose water that broke, but it's empty. She did mention she didn't immediately recognize the gas smell. Maybe someone used the rose water to hide the scent of the gas. Maybe it was Diane. I have a friend who sprays it on her bed linens, but I can't believe she'd use the whole bottle. I certainly don't think your ghost did it. Yeah, I think Diane was right. He was trying to warn her, not harm her. Nate smirked. Oh, right, more sarcasm. Look, this is getting serious. She could have died. Fire inspector thinks it was an accident. Nate limped his way into the kitchen. The stove was pulled away from the wall to access the shutoff valve for the gas. The knobs for the stove were lined up on the counter. There was a roll of paper towels and a spray cleaner next to them. Jennifer came in behind him. Her foot crunched a shard from the coffee cup. Nate stepped aside, and she spotted the cleaning supplies. Well, she said, I can see why the fire inspector thinks it was an accident. Maybe, Nate said. You know how you assume that I'm always looking for evidence to confirm my belief in the paranormal? I think you might be doing the same with Henderson. Nate stood there, silent. And we still need to talk about how you knew that guy was going to be at the hot dog truck, and how you knew that license plate number. Nate looked up. You think that was something more than a coincidence? Someone's uncle once told me there is no such thing as coincidence. Listen, you had some kind of spell in the van, and then the first thing you said was hot dog. And we go to Soma, and there's the guy. Then I get his license plate, and it turns out you already knew it, because it was the first thing you said when you woke up after a near-death experience. That's a lot of coincidences. And that's all it is. Jennifer stared at Nate. She nodded and bent down to pick up the pieces of the shattered coffee cup. Well, she said, placing the shards on the counter, I guess we'll settle this once we've found out exactly what's going on in this apartment. I have a feeling this is going to be a very interesting stakeout. Chapter 40 Nate had Diane Collins' case organized on a large whiteboard in his living room. Well, half of the whiteboard. The other half he had devoted to notes and thoughts on the Axman case and Luther Laramie. He wasn't willing to admit yet that the two were related. Madge lay on her spot on the sofa, watching him. He was resigned to the fact that he had a dog now and found himself enjoying her company. She actually behaved rather well when she could see him. He stepped back from the board. The medical walking boot he had been given at the doctor's office made a hollow clunking sound against the wooden floors. Jennifer had insisted he go to the hospital after they had reported their experience with the freight elevator. The building superintendent didn't seem surprised at the news. He rarely used the old thing himself, and the tenants all knew it was a death trap. Nate talked Jennifer into going to an urgent care clinic instead of the ER. They did an x-ray and some blood tests, and the physician's assistant told Nate he had a severe sprain, but nothing appeared to be broken. A week in the boot was prescribed, and Jennifer drove him home, insisting that his injury was not serious enough to serve as an excuse to get out of their stakeout at Diane's place. 
When he got home, he realized that he had spent the better part of the day with Jennifer. They had passed the time in the waiting room at the clinic exchanging stories of childhood injuries. She had offered to treat him to dinner since he had bought lunch, but he was exhausted and he accepted a rain check instead. She recalled that while she was running around with Nate, her staff was being relocated to yet another office, and she was not anxious to see which level of hell the dean had condemned them to. Nate changed clothes before making himself a sandwich from what he could scrounge from his relatively bare pantry and refrigerator. He still hadn't had time to shop since he'd gotten back from the hospital. He ended up with a marmalade and cream cheese sandwich, something akin to what his mother used to pack in his lunchbox for school. It wasn't bad, but he made a note to get some meats and cheeses in the morning when he went to the market for the stakeout supplies. He enjoyed cooking, but decided that he wouldn't purchase anything that needed an elaborate preparation, since he was effectively down one hand. He regarded the whiteboard. A portion of a map showed the location of Diane's apartment, her office, and Jerry Henderson's place. Between them, he had a small sticky note indicating the travel time between Diane's and Jerry's homes. On another part of the board, he had a timeline for the day. When he and Jennifer encountered Henderson, when Diane made her 911 call, and when they saw Henderson with her outside of the building. Jennifer was right. Nate wanted to believe that Henderson was behind all of Diane's trouble. And the timeline fit but barely. There was time for Henderson to get to Diane's place after Nate and Jennifer had confronted him, and before Diane got home, to stage the stove to appear that she had accidentally turned on the gas while cleaning. But the logic didn't fit. Why would Henderson risk showing up at Diane's place so soon after his encounter with Nate and Jennifer, let alone try to scare her with a gas leak? How did he even know she'd be home early? Or did that change in her schedule throw his plan off? He considered that Henderson wasn't trying to scare her, and actually wanted her dead. But as much of a deadbeat loser Nate thought Jerry was, he didn't figure him for a killer. Besides, Jerry had worked for the gas company. He likely would have made his sabotage a little less obvious. He could have easily moved the stove away from the wall, loosened the gas line, and moved it back. Staging a careless cleaning accident didn't fit with Jerry's character. He doubted Jerry had ever cleaned a stove in his life, which led back to the fire inspector's explanation. Diane had accidentally turned on the gas while cleaning the stove, got distracted, and then came home to a gas-filled apartment. Was it possible it was all Diane? Was she unintentionally, or even subconsciously, responsible for everything that had happened so far? The result of an overactive imagination and overstressed work life? If that was the case, maybe the stakeout Dr. Day and her team wanted to do was just the thing she needed to put her mind at ease. It would reassure her that there were no supernatural entities at work, and she could process the stress of her job without the notion that she was haunted by a ghost. His phone rang. It was Jennifer. Rainy, he said as he answered. I know, Jennifer replied. I called you. Sorry, have it, he explained. I just wanted to give you the new address for our offices. Can you meet me there Saturday, around 11? We can head to Diane's from there. Sounds good, Nate answered. He wrote down the address she gave him. Hey, how is the new office? I have no idea. I won't get a chance to check it out until Saturday myself. How are you? Jennifer asked. Is your ankle feeling better? I keep picturing you hobbling around with your foot in a boot, your arm in a sling, and Madge trying to trip you up. Nate laughed at the image. I'm getting by fine. Thanks for asking. I think I'm going to sit out the marathon next weekend, though. It was Jennifer's turn to laugh. <laughs> I feel bad. I got you involved in this investigation, and it's turning out to be a lot more physically demanding than I expected. That's all right, he reassured her. I've been through worse. Really? Well, no, actually. I've never been shot before or nearly killed by an elevator. I have had my share of foot chases, but seeing Henderson smash himself into your van was a first. That was pretty cool, Jennifer said. 
Nate laughed again. Yeah, it was. I need to watch more TV cop shows. There was a beat of silence. Nate had the urge to thank her for a wonderful day, but as he formed the words in his mind, it sounded like something he would say at the end of a date. Before he could say anything, Jennifer spoke up. Well, I'll see you Saturday. Yeah, see you then. Good night. Good night. Nate ended the call, slipped the phone into his pocket, and hobbled into the kitchen. Madge slid off the sofa and followed him. Out of habit, Nate absently poured himself a glass of red wine from a bottle on the counter. He let the aroma tease his nose. Then he set the glass down and pulled a prescription bottle from his pocket and glanced at the label, where a warning sticker admonished him about mixing it with alcohol. Madge whined at him from the floor. She was sitting next to her food and water dishes. Nate noticed Madge had her gaze focused on his wine. You want some of this? Nate asked. Madge whined again. Nate leaned down and poured a splash of the scarlet liquid into Madge's bowl, curious to see what she would do. The dog sniffed at it, then started lapping it up. You've got expensive tastes, pooch, Nate told her. She looked up at him and whined for more. I don't think that's a good idea, Madge. He reluctantly poured the rest of the glass down the sink. The coffee maker beeped. Nate reached into a cabinet with his good hand. He grabbed a couple of travel mugs, opened the tops, and filled them with hot coffee. To one, he added a dash of cream from the refrigerator, screwed the tops on the cups, and tucked them inside his sling. He crossed back through the living room to the front door and walked outside. Directly in front of his house was a police cruiser. The passenger side window rolled down as Nate approached. Good evening, Moore, Amari, Nate said to the man and woman sitting inside the car. They smiled a greeting. He held up one of the travel mugs. You didn't have to do that, detective. Amari held up a styrofoam coffee cup. Nate caught the scent of the coffee from the car. Smells like I did. Here. He passed them the thermos cups. Moore opened his cup and took a sip. Can't argue with you there. Hey, did you bring one for me? Max asked. Nate turned and saw his partner standing on the sidewalk behind him. Don't you have a robbery and attempted murder to investigate? Well, I figured since you were catching all the breaks in your case, I'd stick as close to you as I can. Maybe one will come my way. I have a feeling that whatever luck I had earlier has run out. Max moved a little closer and lowered his voice. Nate, have you considered that you didn't accidentally run into these guys, but they've been tailing you? You think I was a target? No, not initially at least, but maybe something's changed. Jeez, if this was any other case, you'd be telling me all this. Nate nodded. It was the same point Jennifer was making. He was too close to this investigation to have an objective viewpoint. Come on, I want to do a walkthrough of your house, make sure everything is locked up tight. Thanks, but that's not necessary. I'm not an invalid. Max made a point of glancing at Nate's sling and the boot that encased his foot. I can still kick your ass, Nate asserted. Just make sure no one can sneak in while you're sleeping. Do you have an alarm system in that old place? I have Madge, Nate answered. What the hell is a Madge? My dog. Max laughed. <laughs> I tell you to get a girlfriend, you get a dog. Well, I guess that's better than nothing. Keep your phone and your gun nearby. These officers are instructed to check on any lights that come on, so if you have a weak bladder, expect a knock at the door. Nate sighed. Now you know what it's like to be on the other side of that rainy stubbornness. I'm not stubborn, said the man who made me pee in a Pepsi bottle on a stakeout. No one told you to drink a gallon of coffee. Max turned to the officers in the car. I want status reports every 15 minutes. 10-4, detective, Amari answered. Max wished everyone a good night and walked back to where he parked his car. Down the street, in a black Mustang convertible with the top up, sat Seymour and Freddy. Freddy watched the interaction between Nate and his bodyguards in the side-view mirror. What do you think? he asked his partner. I think the longer we wait, 
the harder it'll get. The headlight of Max's car lit up the inside of the convertible as he drove by. They both ducked down until he passed. Freddy looked to his partner and gave a nod. Chapter 41 Nate woke with a start. He glanced at the glowing numbers on his alarm clock. 3.05. He slowly and quietly sat up and pushed aside his bedding. He paused to listen. There was a faint bump, as if someone was trying to navigate an unfamiliar room in the dark. He reached down to the gun safe under his night table and pressed his thumb against the fingerprint sensor. The safe popped open and he took the gun out. Holding it in his left hand was still a bit awkward. He swung his legs down onto the floor and silently got to his feet. Nate always saw well in the dark. The faint red glow from the alarm clock was enough for him to make his way from the bed to the door. He cautiously peered into the hallway toward the stairway. He thought about the squad car outside and turning on a light to alert them, but that would lightly alert the intruder as well. The hallway was empty. He waited a moment, listening and watching. There was nothing. He stepped out of his bedroom and made his way toward the stairs. One at a time, he descended the steps, keeping his eyes and ears open. Another sound caught his attention. A tapping, as if someone was rapping against something wooden. It stopped. Nate continued down the stairs to the hallway. There was a faint light from a street lamp slipping in through a crack in the curtains. He peeked into the living room. The front door was closed. Considering there was a police car parked in front of his house, it was unlikely any intruder would have tried to enter through there. He turned in the opposite direction toward the kitchen. The clicking sound echoed in the darkness again, followed by a plaintive whine. Nate reached for the kitchen light switch and turned it on. Madge looked up at him. Nate looked over at her kennel in the corner of the kitchen. The door was still closed. You know, one of these days you're going to have to tell me how you do that. There was a knock at the front door. Nate was startled until he realized he had turned on the lights. He crossed back into the living room and unlocked and opened the door. Amari stood in the doorway, her hand resting on her gun. Everything all right, detective? She asked, eyeing the gun in his own hand. Yes, just the dog. On cue, Madge trotted up to the front door and walked up to Amari. The officer smiled and scratched the dog on her head. Okay, sorry to disturb you. No problem. Max will be glad to know you're on the ball. We all want to catch the guys who shot you, she affirmed. Well, they're not here tonight. Good night, sir. Amari turned and walked back to the police car. Nate closed the door and walked back to the kitchen. He reached down to open the kennel door and Madge whined again. All right, but just tonight, Nate told her. He turned off the kitchen light and led Madge back upstairs to his room. He returned his gun to the safe as Madge curled up on the floor next to the bed. Thank you for listening to Part 12 of Near Death, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel. Please remember to share Near Death and my weekly short stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rich Hosick, give us a like on Facebook at Rainy and Day, and don't forget to check out my books on Amazon and follow me there to make sure you get notified when book two, Afterlife, is released. Thanks again, and all the very best.